All right. Hail, brothers. This is Didact with the Didactic Mind podcast. We are finally back. It took me a long time to get around to recording this, but this is Didactic Mind episode 105, Modern Monetary Madness. A very warm welcome, as always, to all of my longtime readers from the site. A very warm welcome to all of my Podbean subscribers. As always, thank you very much indeed for coming over here and uh, downloading the episode and listening and uh, kind of engaging with the site. And if you have not already done so, please remember to like, comment, share, and especially subscribe. Subscribe to the mailing list. You can do so via a little box on the right-hand side of the panel on the site or at the bottom of every post. Uh, Subscribe to this podcast over on Podbean and make sure that you never miss a new upload a new episode, a new blog post. I try to post reasonably regularly. It really depends on how busy I am with work and other things. Last This past week has been quite busy, so it's not been the most productive of weeks. And sometimes it's hard to find the motivation to just sit your ass down and write, but uh, it is what it is. Fortunately, I do have some uh, kind of time tonight. This may be a Slightly drunken podcast because um, this was heavy wait night for me. See, most normal people go out on a Sunday evening or actually they stay in and spend time with family and friends. Weirdos and OCD types like me instead go to the gym and lift stupendously heavy weights because that makes us happy. I'm not saying that's necessarily a good idea, but... That's what we do, um, and that's what I do. So, essentially, what I was doing this evening amounted to going to the gym and lifting, you know, 400 plus pounds off the ground. Uh, my max deadlift these days is uh, I'm not quite actually up to my max yet, and I don't want to be anytime soon. But my max deadlift weight is something close to uh, 470 pounds or uh, what's that, 212.5 kilos, something like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do I do lift heavy weights on the weekends, and uh, then I come home and I eat a big steak dinner with sweet potato fries and I uh, drink a lot of wine. So I think I'm on my second or third glass of wine, so we'll see how this goes. But um, as always, thank you very much indeed once again for listening in, and hopefully today will be educational and useful for you. I want to go back to my roots a little bit, and before I do that, make a note of the fact that uh, what I say and what I do on these podcasts is sometimes difficult to listen to. These are truths spoken about the world we live in, and in a world of lies, which is the one we live in, the truth is very, very difficult to speak in any kind of reasonable fashion. Which is why if you're like me and you want to find the truth, if you seek the truth, then you have to look outside of the places that the Western world wants you to look, where the Western elites want you to look for your information. That means going to sites in countries where you may not be allowed to go. I mean, if you want to get a reasonably unbiased view of the Banderasan War, for instance, you have to look at RT.com. You can't spend your time wasting your day running around looking at Reuters-based articles because Reuters is a propaganda outlet, as is AFP, uh, as is the AP, as is pretty much any Western prostitute outlet. 
So that's where a VPN comes in. I highly recommend Surfshark. I've used Surfshark myself, and I find it to be very, very good, uh, especially on a mobile device. It's got a very clean interface, very simple, just point and click. And essentially, you can bypass geo-blocking restrictions, you can bypass various firewalls, and you can get content that is otherwise not available to you. Just download the app and install it on your phone. Use the link that I've got for you in the description box. And while you're at it, check out Surfshark's other offerings, which include Incogni, their data management service, which will essentially just take care of your personal information for you. Anytime there's an issue with your personal information leaking out, Incogni will simply check on it and handle it. It will simply deal with it for you so that your personal information, your personal details will never be leaked out on the dark web. They will never be taken advantage of. They will never be uh, kind of hacked or compromised. You're, you're good, basically. And they also have their own antivirus software, which is quite useful, especially if you're on Windows. If you're on Linux, not so much, but then if you're on Linux, you don't really need antivirus software. I mean, not to the same extent that you do with Windows anyway. So on to the topic of today's discussion, which essentially goes back a bit to my roots, as I said, to something about economics. Now, as we have seen around the world, inflation is quite high and quite persistent and quite severe. And the thing is, nobody seems to be measuring inflation particularly well, unless you're in Russia or uh, the Netherlands or Germany, well, actually not even Germany, where they do have accurate measures of inflation. I know from personal experience that measures of inflation in Russia are fairly accurate. The prices of food in Russia have gone up probably about 30% on average, which is a lot, especially when you consider that official inflation in Russia is running around 15, well, less now, about 11 to 12% year on year. So how is it that food has gotten so expensive? Well, that's easy to explain in Russia's case. How about other countries? If you look at the United Kingdom, their inflation is officially at 10.1%. In reality, it's easily 20 to 25%. I know because of sources that I have on the ground, I know something about the UK market. If you look at the US, again, official inflation, about 10%. Unofficial real inflation, if you look at shadowstats.org and you look at John Williams's unofficial way of replicating the old methodology, back before it was changed in the 1990s, back before the Bureau of Labor Statistics changed the way that they measure inflation. Real inflation in the economy is running closer to, what, 20 25%, 30%. You're dealing with an inflationary environment in the United States that has not been seen since the 1970s. Not only that, but you're dealing with a weak growth environment on top of really severe inflation. This is something that standard Keynesian economic models said could not happen. It's not supposed to be possible under the neoclassical synthesis up until about the 1970s. Now, the 1970s is when a lot of these issues came to the fore and people realized that it is, in fact, possible to have bad inflation with low economic growth. Why is it that the trade-off existed? 
Well, it essentially comes down to the way that uh, Keynes's mathematics and his models and his whole approach, generally speaking, took shape. In the Keynesian world, essentially everything comes down to price and output. I mean, he tried to come up with this general theory of economics, kind of like the general theory of relativity in physics. He wanted to come up with a general theory that explained the entire economy. Now, if you've read The Failure of the New Economics by Henry Hazlitt, and if you haven't, I highly recommend it. Great book. Henry Hazlitt was an Austrian-influenced uh, journalist with a very strong background in economic theory. He really understood what the Austrians were talking about. And he unpacked page by page in a very dreary uh, way. I mean, he found it very depressing. He actually read through every single play, uh, page of Keynes's general theory of wages, employment, interest, or whatever the specific title is, but the general theory. He read through the whole thing, and he dissected every single idea that Keynes came up with and basically said, this is all nonsense. And it is nonsense, because the way Keynes approached economics, again, he tried to split up the economy into produce, production and demand, supply and demand, aggregate supply and aggregate demand. Well, inevitably, when you try to do that with a dynamic economy, you're going to miss a lot of stuff because everyone who produces also consumes and everyone who consumes also produces by definition. So there is no real way, there is no such thing as breaking up an economy into aggregate supply and aggregate demand. It doesn't exist. The entire fundamental premise of Keynesian economics is wrong. Then you get to this idea of the multiplier effect, which says that government spending has a multiplier impact upon overall output. And the only way you can do that is by going through some fairly convoluted mathematics involving the propensity to save, which, you know, if you decrease the propensity to save, then you increase the multiplier impact of government spending and therefore you can r rapidly increase output and growth. I mean there's a whole bunch of hand wavium involved, a lot of mathematics and most of it if you actually examine it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The moment you subject it to the, the even a modicum of common sense thinking you realize that it all falls apart. The problem is that Keynesian economics gives government uh, officials, the power, at, well, the I should say, it gives them the academic backing, the intellectual heft, as fraudulent as it may be, and it is completely fraudulent, to do what they've always wanted to do, which is to exercise greater control and greater influence over the economy. The only thing that Keynes actually got right in his entire whole thing this massive tome of a book, was the issue of free trade. It's the only thing that Keynes accurately criticized. If you look at the doctrine of free trade, and I've been over this before in other venues and in other posts, and I highly recommend looking up Vox Day's debate with Dr. James Miller, I think it was, from the University of Chicago. Excellent debate in which an ardent defender of free trade, Dr. James Miller, took on Vox Day and lost. And it was a very friendly debate. I mean, it's very, very uh, relaxed and sort of 
respectful and genuinely decent debate. Um, she's just a, he's just a, it's a, it's a very good uh, explanation of the doctrine of free trade. And Vox Day raised five points, which Dr. Miller simply could not answer. And among those five points was this issue of, you know, kind of the, the, the multi-stage model, if you will, or the multi-body model, the, the, the multi-body problem. Uh, the entire doctrine of free trade essentially revolves around the Ricardian way of analyzing things, which is a very, very bad way of analysis. Essentially, what it says is freeze everything in an economy in place except two variables and then change them around. And that's it. The moment you introduce more than two variables into consideration, in the case of free trade doctrine, the moment you introduce more than two countries into the analysis, suddenly everything falls apart. And that is the core flaw of free trade doctrine. Keynes accurately criticized this, but not, for, not in terms of that issue. He criticized it in terms of uh, sucking capital out of an economy and the way that it would damage an economy's ability to increase growth and output. And he proposed a much more mercantilist approach to trade, where he basically said, you know, protect your, uh, your, your economy from imports and make sure that you export as much as you can. Because, you know, if you have X minus M in the Keynesian model, the, if, X is a, if X minus M in net exports is a positive, then that's good for your economy and it's bad for somebody else's, and so on and so forth. Now, what solved the issue of inflation in the 1970s? Standard economic theory will tell you that it was the monetarist revolution in the 1970s under Milton Friedman. Where Milton Friedman came in, Uncle Milty came in and came up with a supply-side approach to economics where he said, no, 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 ignore government spending because actually government spending is deleterious to an economy. It damages the private sector of the economy and it damages the ability of individuals to make free choices and therefore damages economic growth and output. Now, he was right. In, in very large measure, he was right. But if you actually look at the mathematics behind what he was saying, in the, the, the kind of the modeling approaches that the Chicago School of Economics used at the time, there was a lot wrong with it because it was just a Keynesian heresy. And that's literally all it is. It uses the same Keynesian framework of aggregate supply and aggregate demand, but it just changes some of the assumptions around. So that instead of a sticky aggregate supply curve, you now have an, a perfectly inelastic ag aggregate supply curve and basically a completely vertical one, which like aggregate supply doesn't move very easily. Um, it, it just, you know, output takes a long time to adjust to, to, to changes in price. So when you have, uh, when you have that sort of situation, it's a very different situation from the Keynesian approach where you have sticky aggregate supply and things can change more more easily. So essentially what the monetarist said was even if you try to move demand around, it's not going to do much of anything other than create inflation. The key instead is to shift aggregate supply outward and thereby drive down prices. How do you do that? By reducing the rate of interest and thereby increasing, uh, you know, manipulating the money supply thereby increasing the ability of firms to invest, decreasing their tax burdens, decreasing their 
regulatory burdens and allowing the economy to produce as much as possible. I mean, there, there are a lot of elements of truth to that. The, the, really, I mean, if you actually unpack it, that makes a lot of sense from a logical perspective, from a, a philosophical perspective. It makes tremendous sense. Unless, of course, you're a complete statist and you believe that government should rule over everything, which, of course, I do not. I am myself an Austrian-influenced uh, thinker in terms of the way I think about economics. But if you look at the way that the monetarists justified these insights, again, they just used Keynesian economics. Milton Friedman also came up with the general philosophy behind why inflation exists. He argued that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. If you look at his book, the Mo a Monetary History of the United States, which he wrote with Anna Schwartz, it's a very biased work in terms of the way that it looks at money and the influence of money because it argues for a strong central bank. And that is a colossal mistake. It argues that the depression of the late 1920s and early 1930s, the Great Depression, happened because the Federal Reserve cut back on money supply too far and too fast. Essentially, the Federal Reserve at the time raised rates too quickly. And that was a mistake. And it has used that argument ever since to justify the existence of the Fed and the power of the Federal Reserve as an institution. Now, this was a massive mistake. And if you look at the, the history of the US dollar, ever since 1913, which is when the Federal Reserve came into being, or ever since 1924, I believe, which is when the Federal Reserve started open money operations, or open market operations, excuse me. The open market operations is where they, um, they essentially raise and lower the, the, the rate of lending uh, of, um, you know, between banks to, to regulate the supply of money available to the market. If you look at the history of the US dollar, it has lost 99% of its value since 1913, since the introduction of the central bank. And that is the same course that every single currency has taken under the influence and guidance of a central bank, every single one. There is not one example, as far as I am aware, of a currency that has maintained its stability and its value since its introduction when managed centrally by a private banking enterprise, which is what, at least in the Western world, every central bank is. In Russia, I don't think that's the case. I could be wrong. I, don't, I am not familiar with Russian law. So, you know, if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. I apologize. But as far as I know, and again, please don't take my word for it, the Central Bank of Russia is not a private enterprise, but it is independent somehow uh, of the government in the sense that Elvira Nabiulina was appointed by the Duma. I mean, it's a bit different in the sense that the president of the Russian Federation, which is to say Putin, comes up with a candidate and says, this is who I want as a central bank candidate. And then because his party, you know, Yedinaya Rasiya controls the Duma with like 60% of 70% of the seats, inevitably that candidate passes muster, of course, right? 
we know that the, the Russian system is very strongly centralized. Power resides in the person of the president, but whatever. The point is, in most countries, the central bank head is nominally independent, but really is answerable to the banking system. In many countries, that is not entirely the case. In Turkey, for example, the central bank head answers really ultimately to President Erdogan, uh, Turkey, as we're supposed to call it now. What is the impact of central banking on money? Well, in almost every single instance, it's been an utter disaster. Every single time. Inflation has eaten away the savings and lifeblood of the economy, and you are left with worthless paper currency, or nowadays digital currency, which buys less and less every single year. Out of the wreckage of Keynesianism and out of the largely now discredited theory of monetarism has come a mutation of both. And this is what I wanted to address in today's discussion. It's called modern monetary theory. And I've written about it before. I've called it modern monetary trickery, which it is. And it's a, it's a branch of economic theory that essentially says a government doesn't need to worry about deficits and debt anymore because a government can essentially inflate away the value of the currency if it needs to. So it can spend as much as it needs to, it can issue as much debt as it needs to, and it can print as much money as it needs to in order to justify and stimulate growth in the economy. This is insane. It's fundamentally insane. And I'm going to explain why. To understand why MMT is such a bad idea, you have to go back to what money actually is. What is money? Well, any form of money has to meet, by the academic criteria, three specific definitions. Number one, it's actually, you can argue it's four. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's leave it at three. Every type of money, to be considered money, something has to meet three different specific standards. Number one, money has to be a medium of exchange, meaning that it has to be the intermediary thing that allows you to exchange that thing for something else. You don't buy chicken at the supermarket by trading goats from your livestock. You, you don't buy a pound of chicken by selling half a pound of goat, especially if you have a live goat at home. You don't buy three pounds of beef by selling five kilograms of trout. It doesn't work like that. If you try to keep control of all of these different variables in your head, it would be impossible. There is no supercomputer on earth that could track all of the various different permutations and combinations and agreements and ideas and ways of exchanging things that people could come up with to trade mushrooms for jewelry and feathers for caps and trench coats for baseball bats and, uh, you know, what have you. I mean, how would you value a smartphone in coffee beans? 
Or how would you value a teacup in stainless steel? It's impossible. You can't do it, right? For that, you need a medium of exchange. That's money. There are lots of different things that could perform that function. But ultimately, it's something that everybody agrees, everyone in, in, in the whole world around you, you know, you, you all look at each other and you go, okay, hey, you guys, you guys, so everybody here, we all agree, right? All of us, all of us, you, me, him, Sally, Jimmy, you know, whoever, we all agree that we're going to use this thing, whatever this thing is, as money, as a medium of exchange. Now, to be a medium of exchange, something has to be, whatever it is, has to be divisible. Meaning you can divide it into smaller and smaller units of that same thing without loss of integrity of that thing. So this is why, for example, feathers are not generally a good form of money. You can't divide a feather into smaller feathers. Once you try to chop up a goose feather into smaller feathers, it stops being a feather. I mean, like, duh, right? And yet feathers, by the way, were used as a form of money by, apparently by the ancient Aztecs uh, and by the Incas. So you typically would want to use something that can be readily subdivided into other units of that something, which is why in ancient Sparta, for example, they used iron bars as money. Generally speaking, though, money also has to meet a second standard. It must be a store of value, which means that it has to keep its, its actual value over time. So it cannot simply be used today for a transaction. It has to maintain that value to be used for the same transaction the next day and the next day and the next day and the day after that and through all the years to come. This automatically limits the number of things that you can use for money. So you can't use perishable goods by definition. You can't use uh, chicken breasts for money. That would be stupid, right? Yes, you can subdivide a chicken breast into smaller bits of chicken breast, and you could pass that around, and that would be, you know, money for today. By tomorrow, it would be a bit iffy, and by the next day, it would be disgusting. You can't do it with beans, for the same reason. You can't really chop up a bean into smaller beans. No, not, not really possible. And eventually they'll go bad. As a result, what typically happens is money turns out to be something like a precious metal, which is why gold and silver and copper and tin and steel and uh, iron have been used historically as money. The third definition is a unit of account. And that means that you can use money to compare the value of two different items or to count up the total value of stuff that you have. And this again links back to the other two definitions because number one, that unit of account has to be readily identifiable across everything that you own. And number two, it has to hold its value through time. So you would typically try to avoid using things that rust or oxidize or decay. And you would typically want to use something that has an actual industrial value or something that has actual application in the real economy. 
And what does that come down to in most cases? Gold and silver. Literally, that's it. Gold and silver. And bronze and, you know, tin and, and, and a few other uh, metal-based coins. But generally speaking, the things that have satisfied all of these definitions are gold and silver. And that is why gold and silver have been used as money by almost every culture that you can find anywhere in the world. That's not true of all of them, of course, but in all of the ones that actually achieved some kind of advanced civilization, pretty much all of them used gold and silver. Now, all three definitions have to, are prerequisites for something to be called money. That's very true. But there's a more fundamental idea than that behind money itself. Think about what money is. Money is the translation of your hard work, your labor, into stuff that you can buy with that labor. If you work, if you go out into the fields and you plow the fields and you plant crops, that has value, it has economic value, you're producing something. And that something has to be traded for something else. You can't just eat all of your crops because you can't actually just eat the stuff that comes out of the ground. It has to be cooked and it has to be processed and it has to be milled down and it has to be transformed into something. For that, you need tools. To buy the tools, you need to trade your stuff. To trade your stuff, you need money. What is money? It is a translation of time. It is a translation of productive capacity through time. Which means, in a very literal sense, money is the translation of your life into stuff that you can buy with your time. Now that you understand this, now that you understand that the literal truth of the statement that time is money, because it is, literally, your life, your, the, the days and minutes and hours of your life are worth something, especially depending on what you do with the days and hours and minutes of your life, now you understand why the debasement of currency is so evil. Because what people are doing is devaluing your life. They are devaluing what you can buy with the labor of your days, of your time. And the moment you understand this, forget all the fancy economic theories, forget all the guys with PhDs from Harvard and Princeton and Yale and all these fancy schools. Trust me, I, can, I promise you, I can match most of these guys for qualifications. I can exceed most of them. Only the ones who have like PhDs can exceed my level of sort of on paper qualification. Only the guys who have like MSCs in quantitative economics from places like the LSE and Stanford and MIT and some of these other places can exceed my level of qualification on paper. Trust me when I say these people aren't that impressive. They're just not. They're not impressive people, but they come up with impressive sounding theories. But every single theory that they come up with essentially comes down to the devaluation of your life.
And that is why inflation is so evil. Because it essentially says your life is worth less in reality than your production would say it is. That your productive capacity, that your actual output is worth. They have debased your life. And that too links to why MMT, modern monetary theory, is so dangerous. Essentially what they're saying is, in MMT, you can print and spend and dick around with the money supply as much as you like and it's not a problem. It doesn't matter because you can always just borrow against future consumption. If you need to borrow money to sustain your current level of consumption, do it because future generations will pay the debt. And all that matters is current consumption now. If you need to print money to inflate away the value of the debt, that's fine. Do it. There are no consequences for it because the growth will offset the impact of the inflation. There's a lot of hand waving going on in all of this. But ultimately, it always comes down to the same thing. They're always saying the exact same thing, which is the life and production of the average man can be wasted. It can be squandered. It can be devalued. And that's exactly the impact of things like MMT. Now, what happens when you enact MMT in real life? You get a situation similar to what you have in the United States today. The United States racks up multi-trillion dollar deficits, not debt, deficits. The total debt is in excess of $30 trillion at this point against a, a supposed nominal GDP of 25 some trillion. That is insane. I mean, no one's ever seen debt numbers like this before. No economy has ever seen debt numbers like that. No economy has ever seen deficit numbers like that. How on earth can this be justified? The only way to justify it is by saying, well, we're borrowing against the future and we're printing money now to wipe out the value of that debt. And this isn't going to have consequences because all that we need to do is grow our way out of the crisis. We just need to increase our productive capacity. Well, that's wrong. All you're doing is destroying the value of money today, which is to say, destroying the value of labor. And again, the moment you understand this fundamental connection between time and money, between your time and your life, and the money that puts a value on that time and life, the, more, the, the moment you understand that, you will understand instantly exactly why there is no way to grow out of it. Exactly why this inflationary crisis that affects the whole world is so devastating. Essentially, what they're saying is, we're going to destroy your life and destroy the lives of future generations to maintain an, illusion, an elusive uh, an illusory level of output, a level of output that is not justified by the actual production in the economy today. You can't grow past this amount. It's not possible. You can't grow beyond what is physically possible today. So that leads us to the question of how do you solve an inflationary problem? Now, lots of ways have been proposed. Lots of them have been tried. Most of them have failed. 
if you look at the example of the United States in the 1980s, the conventional wisdom trotted out by most Republicans and conservatives is that Paul Volcker saved the day by hiking interest rates like 18% and absolutely crushing the economy, crushing demand, destroying, you know, there's a dog yapping in the background. I don't know if you can hear that, but um, there are a few dogs in my building. Um, the only way to do it is to destroy and squeeze the economy down until prices and inflationary expectations drop to the point where inflation is now under control. And then you can start cutting rates and, you know, leading, you can, you can start letting the economy expand. This leads to what is known as the, 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 the Taylor rule. Um, basically, you know, twice the level of current inflation or whatever it is. Uh, I forget exactly what it is actually. The Taylor rule for inflation uh, basically says that it's a way of like targeting inflation to stabilize the economy. And essentially, it just says something like um, where, you know, you have your inflationary target plus uh, 500 or yeah, 50 basis points, I think. Um, I'm not exactly clear on, on the, the exact value of the Taylor rule, but essentially what it says is you have your inflationary target times two plus some margin of error, basically. Um, if you apply that today to today's inflation rate, it's like, uh, it's, sorry, it's your inflation target plus current inflation plus a, a fudge factor. If you apply that to today's inflation rate, if, you're, if your target is 2% inflation every year, and actual inflation is running at 10%, your target interest rate should be like 12.5% according to the Taylor rule. It's a very crude measure. It's not a good one at all. I don't think so. If you did that, what would happen? Well, you'd crush the US economy, you'd destroy it. You'd, you'd wipe out the value of the financial sector, which is like 25 plus percent of America's GDP. You'd cause massive unemployment. I mean, it would shoot up past 15, 20% you would crush the, the, the industrial sector, you would crush every single aspect of the economy, you destroy the economy, but you might bring down inflation over time. That's the conventional wisdom. Now, does it apply in real life? Well, again, this comes back to Milton Friedman's saying that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. After thinking about this issue for a long time, and I'm not saying I'm the smartest Friedman because I'm not. He was much, much smarter than me and much more intelligent, much more experienced, much more knowledgeable about economics and about the data. So I'm not saying that he was wrong. I'm just saying that there are other factors that you have to consider. Inflation starts out as a monetary phenomenon. That's true. I fully agree with that because it essentially starts out as a debasement of people's lives. It essentially starts out as destruction of the value of their time. But what happens over time? Well, People adjust their expectations. They adjust their views of what inflation will be. They adjust their understanding of where the economy will be in a year or two years or three years. And this is where the issue of inflation expectations comes in, where if you see that your current paycheck buys 20% less every single day relative to what it did a year ago, you, you see that the government is lying to you about inflation. 
you expect that inflation will go up, will, will be at least 20% by year end. So when it comes time to negotiate with your boss for a pay raise or look at ways to cut your expenses, you're not going to cut your expenses or negotiate a pay raise of 10%. You're going to cut your expenses or, or negotiate a pay raise of 20% because that was, that's what you expect. But the government's telling you 10% is the actual rate of increase. Your employer is therefore going to try to negotiate you down and say, no, no, well, we can, we can only afford to raise your pay 5% or 8%. So, you know, you're still losing. But relative to what you see on your, in your daily grocery bill, you're still losing massively. So you can't take that. Or if you do take it, you have to take a huge haircut on your overall spending. On, you have to start choosing what you're going to buy. You have to be careful about what you spend on. You can't afford to go on holidays. You can't afford to go on vacations. So inflation of that kind is very, very dangerous. Now, I fundamentally disagree with uh, pretty much everybody who says that inflation, moderate, you know, mild inflation of 2% or so is good for the economy. No, it's not. It's just not. In 36 years, if you use the rule of 72, you, you know, the rule of 72 is a, a mathematical construct that approximates how long it would take for um, something to double in value based on uh, based on its current growth rate. So, or if you if you were to divide 72 by the approximate stated growth rate, how long would it take for that to lose half of its value? Well, at 72 divided by two, you would get 36. So, in roughly 36 years' time your money, you know, $1 today or one pound today or one euro today would, would be worth 50 cents, 50 pence, 50 euro cents. That still means you're losing money over time. It still means over generations, the, the purchasing power of your work, your life, your, your output will decrease. So how is that a good deal? People are horrified and terrified they're absolutely horrified by and terrified of deflation. Well, why? Why is deflation such a bad thing? The reality is that deflation is not a bad thing, not at all. It's actually the natural course of any economy. In an economy with stable, sound money, with a monetary system built on something like gold or silver, with the currency pegged to the value of gold, where the value of gold determines the exchange rate of your currency against other currencies around the world, which are also gold-backed, or you know they don't have to be gold-backed. That's the beauty of a gold uh, monetary system. If your government spends too much one year, it has to cut back the next. And if your government spends too little one year, then it can increase a bit the next year. Because the idea is to make sure that your currency stays stable against the price of gold on the international market. And that enforces a certain amount of discipline on government spending and government policy. It also enforces discipline upon economic production and planning. Because companies can expect that whatever money they're putting aside this year for capital expenses and investments will stay that amount next year. Whatever they're planning for salary increases this year, that's going to be consistent for the foreseeable future. That stability is a good thing. It also means that over time, as production processes become more efficient, 
and people become more skilled and specialized in what they do, the cost of producing goods and services goes down. And here's the interesting thing. If you look at the history of economic production and consumption, you'll find that prices go down a damn sight faster than wages do. And prices go up a damn sight faster than wages do. So, when prices start going down in an economy, which is their natural tendency, and all you have to do to understand this is to look at the cost of a computer. I mean, look at your mobile phone today. It's a smartphone. The power of that phone today is exponentially greater than the power of the world's best supercomputer 30 years ago. Your, your smartphone today can do far more than your, you know, the, 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 the top of the line IBM supercomputer could in the 1980s. Your phone today is worth much, much more than that computer was back then, but it costs much, much less. That is the power of production and specialization, and it's an amazing power. What we therefore find is that when deflation hits, it's really not necessarily a bad thing. It's often necessary to get rid of all the junk and rot in an economy. It's necessary to clean out an economy. If you look at the so-called depression of the 1870s, this is an interesting episode in American economic history. 1875 to 79, a severe, or actually I think it was 1873, I may have the dates wrong, uh, a severe depression hit the farming um, industry in the United States. So the U.S. was still predominantly farming uh, based back then. It was industrializing very quickly, that's true. It was rapidly becoming the world's greatest industrial power. But the farm economy in the United States still had tremendous power and tremendous sway. Now, in the 1870s, a major crisis hit the farming sector. A lot of farms went bust. A lot of banks went bust because back then, the concept of a you know, giant national banks didn't really exist. Most banks and credit unions were locally based. So they serviced farms and families kind of in and around the towns that they were based in. So you had lots and lots and lots of little banks all around the country. And one by one, they started failing because crop yields uh, cratered and farms went bust and a lot of people did suffer. That's true. But here's the thing. That depression, which all the economic historians in subsequent years wrote as being an utter calamity and a terrible catastrophe and something, the, you know, the government should have done something about it. When you look back, you realize it was nothing of the sort, actually. Because what happened was prices went down faster than wages did. So in reality, people felt that they were getting richer in terms of what they could buy and sell. So their real wages, their real spending power went up. And that's the reality of most deflationary environments. It's not a bad thing for the average man. So when people say deflation is a terrible thing for the economy, no, it's not. It's just not. It's actually the natural state of economic output and production. It's not something we should be terrified of. It's something we should be fairly relaxed about, as long as it, you know, it, it doesn't get down to 
like 10 or 20% annual deflation, then it's a problem. But annual deflation of some kind is generally to be expected. Annual inflation of some kind is a very bad idea. Ideally, you want prices to be relatively stable. And this, again, is where modern monetary theory gets it completely wrong. MMT essentially says the price level doesn't matter because, again, you can produce your way out of trouble, you can finance your way out of trouble, you can uh, spend your way out of trouble. No, you can't. There are physical and psychological limits to all of this. You can't do this forever. Let's take a look at the track record of systems where monetary policy has become completely unhinged from reality. Look at Argentina. The last time I checked, their inflation rate was running at 83% and their core interest rate is like 75%. This is a, it's a country that has completely lost grip with reality. They're using the same approach that standard monetary theory would say to use. You know, jack up interest rates, watch the economy crater, destroy output, destroy production, but get, get prices under control. And yet that's exactly what's not happening. Prices are out of, completely out of control. They're not coming back in line with any kind of target. Inflation just keeps getting higher and higher and higher, no matter how high interest rates get. Why? Because the man on the street does not believe that inflation will come under control. So he adjusts his expectations accordingly and budgets ahead accordingly. He budgets that inflation will keep going up. So he thinks he can keep borrowing, you know, because borrowing under inflationary conditions is good for the borrower and terrible for the lender. Uh, the amount that he has to pay back in real terms, the amount that the borrower has to pay back in real terms goes down the amount that the lender ha gets back also goes down. So it's a terrible, terrible cycle for lenders, but it's a great cycle for borrowers. They love it. They, they, for them, it's, you know, it, it's, it's great business. They, they adore inflationary environments. Look at Turkey. The Turkish system was one where the head of the Turkish Central Bank... Now, I, I happen to have some knowledge of this because I actually interviewed somebody from um, the Turkish Central Bank a while back for, it wasn't actually an interview, it was just kind of a, an informal catch-up. He liked some of the work I'd done in, in another field. Um, but I've spoken to a number of different business people engaged in different business ventures in Turkey for a couple of different projects. And it's just fascinating to, to, to learn about the Turkish economy. I haven't been to Turkey since 2018, but what I saw there was very interesting. Um, and very revealing and, and, a, and a bit worrying. Turkey is another economy that has huge potential, but is a basket case because they can't get inflation under control. They have no idea how to do it. So inflation is running there at 80%, but the central bank interest rates are going down. And they were going up for a while, and now they're going down. What's going on? In the United States, interest rates are still relatively low, Inflation keeps going up. They keep raising rates. Inflation still goes up. Why? The answer is that MMT has nothing to say about the core drivers of inflation. Inflation starts out as a monetary phenomenon, yes. But how do you resolve it? Ultimately, once inflation gets going, it's very hard to rein in. And here is where unwittingly, the old monetarists kind of had it right. 
To get inflation under control, you have to look at the roadblocks in the economy that are stopping prices from adjusting properly. Those roadblocks always include things like energy and food, the basics that people need to live, the very basic things that people will always spend their money on and try to subsist upon. What are those basic things? Petrol, gasoline, gas in the United States, food, heating, housing, electricity. If these things keep going up and up and up and up, Inflation will keep going up. That's why you have a situation in Germany where the producers, you know, the, the manufacturing index, the PMI number, is like 50% relative to the year before. But consumer inflation is only 10%? Like, dude, th there's something wrong right there. There's something seriously wrong with the mathematics. I don't have to have two degrees in mathematics to tell you that's wrong. Any idiot can figure it out for himself. You have a situation where the numbers are completely unmoored from reality. So how do you solve this problem of persistent inflation? Number one, in a, if, if we look at the situation as we have it today, the number one thing you can do is stop putting sanctions on people. The, the single greatest way to disrupt an economy is to put sanctions on its supply lines. Look at what's happened to Western Europe. Where is Western Europe's inflation problem crisis coming from? It's coming from the fact that Europe no longer has access to cheap Russian energy, cheap Russian oil, gas, or coal. It no longer has access to cheap Russian food. It no longer has access to world markets that could keep its inflation numbers down because the cost of importing everything into Europe has jacked up so dramatically from their own stupidity and from believing the United States and from letting an essentially terrorist regime allegedly, allegedly, quote-unquote, destroy the Nord Stream pipelines. Allegedly, okay? I mean, I think you'd have to have a hole in the head to believe that the Russians did it to themselves, but, you know, um, f uh, hundreds of millions of people in Europe believe that the Russians destroyed their own pipelines, so what do I know? Um, but this is the reality. I mean, if you have a situation where massive money printing to combat the, the effects of the coup and the lockdowns started inflation, the last thing you want to do is exacerbate that issue, that situation, by shutting down supply lines for the things that you actually need. But that's exactly what the Western world is doing. The world is bifurcating into very hostile camps. On the one hand, you have the collective West, the golden billion, who are no longer golden. They're descending rapidly into poverty and deindustrialization. And they're doing all of this in service to the empire of lies, which wants to, ex to exercise complete hegemonic control over the entire world. And it's failing. I mean, it's, it's visibly failing. But the thing about incoherent, incompetent empires is that as they fail, they grow more and more desperate and more and more crazy. And we're living through that episode of craziness and insanity and desperation right now. So when you have an inflationary situation created by bad monetary policy, by MMT, by this adherence to this insane idea of debasing the lifeblood of people's work and labor and turning that into basically crap, 
you know, taking gold and turning it into dirt or um, feces, if you will, we'll try not to swear, then you have a situation where you've unleashed inflation, but now you're making it 10 times worse. In these situations, tight monetary policy alone is not going to save you because, again, the impact of expectations means that you have to crush and destroy the entire economy to get inflation back under control. When people hear from the government that inflation is 10%, but they see it's 20%, they expect that prices will be 20% higher. So they budget accordingly. As I said before, right? This is the power of expectations. So if even if interest rates go up to 10%, people still realize that prices are going, are, are running 10% higher still, 10 percentage points higher still. So they don't view that policy as credible. The only way to make it credible is to jack up interest rates to 25% and therefore, therefore destroy the economy. But you're not going to manage it. No country has the political will to do something like that. Almost none. No country has the balls to do something like that because it means the destruction of their economy. It means cratering their economy for five to 10 years and then slowly, slowly, slowly rebuilding it. There are better ways to do things. First, get your spending and your money under control. Second, and even more importantly in some ways, get your supply lines opened up. Start rolling back these insane sanctions. Start looking for cheap energy, cheap food, cheap oil, cheap natural gas. If you can't get them domestically, import it, but don't piss off your trading partners. These are real policies. MMT is a joke. Keynesian economics is a really bad joke. Listening to the empire of lies is the surest path to suicide. The best way for nations to rebuild and get away from this craziness is to take a step back, get their finances under control, stop printing money constantly, restore the sovereignty of the national currencies, put their money on a sound footing, because again, Money equals time and time equals money. It's an iron law. The lifeblood of your people translates into the money that you can spend and start reopening your supply lines. And once people start doing this, you'll see the inflation numbers start to come down. You'll see some sense of normalcy come back to the economy. You'll see people begin to produce again. You'll see political stability return. But none of these things will happen until the people of the West wake up and realize they've been taken on a massive ride for the last 30 years. And that ride is now coming to an end. Well, I'm running up against the hour mark and my voice is fading because I don't, I'm not generally used to talking for this long. But uh, I hope this was educational. I hope people got something out of it. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast itself. I will try to make this a slightly more regular occurrence, but... Uh, I've said that before, so I wouldn't blame you if you don't believe me. I don't believe me, so, you know. Um, but thank you again for tuning in. Uh, really appreciate it. Please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe, as I said before. Make sure you subscribe to the site. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Check out the links in the description box, and I will catch up with you later. Many thanks again, and this has been Didactic Mind, episode 105, Modern Monetary Madness. I am Didact, signing off.